I'd like to just preface my presentation by saying that this, a lot of the thoughts on this, at least the, the, in the kind of setting up of, the, um, of my uh, presentation, um, are drawn from a paper that I'm working on with my colleague Anna Lindley, who's sitting in the back. Um, and Anna has kindly uh, allowed me to take our ideas and run with them, so we'll see if this helps us to finish our paper more quickly. Um, it's a paper looking at crisis and displacement and, and really taking on board uh, or critically examining the idea of Somalia as a kind of 20-year basket case, uh, a situation of constant crisis and, and looking at specifically what, are the, what kind of functions are served by uh, a narrative that, that talks about Somalia as being uh, entirely a situation of crisis, and what are the alternative ways of thinking about it? And clearly, I mean, those of you who, who have been studying Somali issues, Somali uh, politics and history over the last, um, at least the last two decades, if not longer, I know some have been looking at it for much longer than that, um, will know that there have been sort of ebbs and flows in conflict uh, dynamics, and, and crucially for what I want to talk about today in terms of displacement dynamics. Um, and this uh, what I want to do is to try to situate mobility, Somali mobility and displacement within the larger context of thinking about politics and conflict uh, dynamics to show that, that mobility and displacement is not something that's happened sort of alongside what's happened politically uh, in, within the region, but actually has been a central part of that, often as a cause of, of uh, or a cause or an influencing factor on political dynamics. Um, sometimes as a result, but that it sort of to try to kind of situate a political an analysis of the region within this kind of state of constant flux, or, or not always constant flux, perhaps, ebbs and flows of constant flux. So just uh, in this paper, we've kind of identified three different um, historical periods that we want to look at, and I'm not going to go into the details of those, those of you who, who uh, are familiar with the horn, certainly don't need that kind of a lesson, but just wanted to mention kind of some of the major issues related to mobility that are featured in each of these different periods. The first being really from the beginning of the, beginning of the end of the state, in a sense, 1988, when the SNM first started their fighting up in, in the Somaliland area, um, and stretching up until 1995. And, and in terms of mobility then, so again, Forgive me because I'm going to gloss over a lot of sort of the what happened and all of the dynamics, which I think most of us are pretty familiar with. And if you're not, they're too complicated to try to squeeze into 20 minutes. Um, but, but just to say that uh, the intensification of conflict, this, the collapse of the state, resulted in a kind of um, hardening of divisions between different clans, um, a particular disenfranchisement of minority clans. Um, and, for, and I think this is a kind of theme that I, I suspect will come out quite a lot today. And Nisa Armajid, who's here, has just written a really great article looking at what's happened with minorities in particular and, and some uh, marginalized groups within Somalia, particularly around the 2011 famine. Um, but also, sort of, um, there was more generalized insecurity, less of sort of a breakdown of law and order. And so the vulnerabilities that, of, that we know often lead to displacement certainly uh, were intensified. Uh, 1991-92, there was a humanitarian crisis with an extreme food shortage, some might say a famine, I would say a famine, in which it's estimated that perhaps 240,000 people died. Very hard to know exactly whether that's about these figures and how, how accurate they are. Um, but 
but uh, clearly there was a very large loss of life. And, and the, some of the features with regard to displacement that occurred here are um, that there was mass displacement into the cities and then also displacement out of the country, first refugees really turning up in Kenya and the establishment of the Dadaab refugee camp, which as we know today is the world's largest refugee camp. Was originally, Dadaab was originally set up just to accommodate 90,000 people, which already seemed like quite a lot of people. There are now more than half a million living in the, the Dadaab refugee camp <coughs> complex. It was also the beginning of a constraining of humanitarian space, and that has sort of set the tone for how international actors in particular have related to Somali civilians, Somali uh, citizens, generally speaking, and particularly with regard to displaced people. So we see this kind of uh, theme carried on in subsequent periods. From 1996 to 2006, there was a period of rev relative calm, and that's something that is often uh, masked over when you think about Somalia as being in a state of constant crisis. This idea that, in fact, for about 10 years, there, was not, there were not huge numbers of new people being displaced. In fact, there were quite a lot of people returning from uh, Ethiopia, in particular, to the northern regions and, and uh, the sort of Ethiopia-Somaliland um, repatriation being most notable among those movements. So, so there are a few kind of characteristics of those periods that are worth thinking about. One is that local power structures became much more localized and, and local control, instead of looking to a central government, which wasn't there obviously, uh, people looked much more towards their own clan leadership and their own local leadership to provide some levels of security and where possible some kinds of service. Um, and so there was a kind of yeah, localizing of, of, of political authority. Um, there was also, quite importantly, a dwindling of aid resources from massive 1.5 billion in 1993, um, according to Mark Bradbury, to uh, only um, 30 million dollars between 96 and 97. Um, so, so huge shrinking of aid. And um, I remember I was working in, in Somalia in 1998 and for UNDP, which at that time was a very, very small UN agency, nothing like uh, what it is now. Um, and there was a constant kind of gnashing of teeth and uh, wringing of hands about the shortage of, sh of humanitarian supplies. But in hindsight, it, might, it looks like actually the, l the absence of large amounts of international humanitarian relief may have actually helped to shore up some of the peaceful kind of conditions that we saw during this time period. We've seen that aid resources often get integrated into the wartime economy such that, that people start fighting over access to those resources and in fact uh, it can be a destabilizing force. Um, there are also the establishment of, Put of the regional administration of Puntland in 1998 made it possible for smaller numbers to come back. Many more people who were from Puntland sort of remained unsure about what the future of that area would be and so there wasn't such massive return but there was some. Um, and as Anna points out in a, in a study that she's done on protracted uh, displacement um, in Mogadishu, there was a more, became a, not so much a secure situation, but a kind of normality of insecurity in a way. People learning to live with the kinds of insecurity that was part of the a daily feature of their lives, learned how to m sort of minimize threats against themselves and, and sort of learned to live with that level of insecurity. Um, so that people weren't leaving in large numbers from the city. There was still some kinds of displacement due to drought and flood, some natural, natural disaster uh, displacement. And it's also true that poverty and malnutrition re remained quite high, so the po population was quite vulnerable, but still not massive kinds of crises. 
During that period, I think it's useful to think about what life was like for those who were living in exile or living in a situation of displacement. A whole generation of people grew up inside refugee camps, and uh, so you have sort of a second generation of people emerging within these refugee camps who really could never, didn't have a living memory of what life had been like back in Somalia. Um, a Kenya, the Kenyan refugee policy had been that everyone, uh, that refugees were required to remain inside camps and people didn't have the legal permission to leave the camps and go to live in cities. We know that many thousands of people did, in fact, and the, the, the Kenyan community of, or the Nairobi community of Eastleigh in particular sprung up during that time. But there was, uh, there was a precarious nature of life in which people were moving around in, with, without documentation, without legal authority, which made their lives as well quite vulnerable. Uh, there was also uh, an inc accelerated resettlement of Bantu, or so-called Bantu minority clans, particularly to the U.S. And there has been a sort of construction of what Ken Mankhouse has called a kind of construction of Bantu identity around the idea, the possibility of being resettled, whereas he would argue that, that Bantu identity hadn't existed before. It became quite kind of crystallized as a historical ethnic narrative and an identity to which people ascribe themselves in order to qualify for resettlement. And then just a kind of increasing kind of movement of people out of Somalia and also out of ref the sort of local near diaspora refugee centers to further off places, which in, in what might be called the diasporization <coughs> of Somalis. And we know that now in any country you go to in the world, you will find Somali communities and that they are in some places quite well established. The UK has the largest population uh, of the uh, largest Somali population within Europe uh, at the moment. And then over time there became this kind of strategy of managing risk, of managing multiple locations at the same time. And people sort of having one, f maybe having part of their relatives, part of their families living in the UK, part living in Dubai, some living in Nairobi, some living in fact back in Somalia and people moving between these different locations, creatively managing risks and trying to maximize the benefits of, of this kind of multiple emplacement, if you like. Um, from, from 2006 until basically until about 2012, we see, have seen this an escalation of violence, the emergence of the Al-Shabaab rebel movement, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot today. 2006 to 2009, the invasion of Ethiopia and the displacement of a large numbers of people in, with regards to that invasion movement. And then the withdrawal, the quick withdrawal of Ethiopia at the same time also set people uh, in play and in, in, in motion. Um, the transitional federal government at the time didn't have the ability to even protect itself. It protected a tiny little perimeter within Mogadishu and didn't have any, any real presence in most of the cities throughout Somalia. So the idea of government providing protection or even and providing the sort of the basic kind of um, services and or uh, kind of facilitating um, uh, capacity for people to return was completely absent. And it's only really been since 2011 with the withdrawal of al-Shabaab from Mogadishu that government has started to expand its, its presence and clearly that's happened even more so since the end of the transition last year. From the 2006 to 2012 period, there were mass influxes of people into Mogadishu, into Kenya, again into Ethiopia. Ethiopia had sort of rid itself, in a sense, of its Somali refugee problem. It has its own problems with its own Somali 
Ogden uh, population, but had uh, was sort of thought it had turned the back, it turned its back in a sense on on its own experience of hosting refugees, but now has something like 200,000 people uh, living in refugee camps, and so and then you have worsening dis- uh, security in displaced areas and. And, and then again, as well, a kind of worsening of vulnerability so that those, in the first instance, many people had left urban areas to go live with their relatives in rural areas to provide, to get some kinds of support from relatives. Now the, the hosts were, in fact, becoming more impoverished and they were joining their relatives in, and moving on further. So you have this kind of movement sort of st- in stages and, uh, and people really having lost everything now becoming refugees. This is just a map to show what the situation looked like in 2011 when uh, the worst of the food insecurity was reported. And, and as you can see, that it, it sort, of, uh, sort of situates itself between the Juba and Shabeli rivers in what should be the breadbasket of Somalia. It's the most uh, sort of um, arch- agriculturally uh, fertile area. Um, but because it's also the epicenter of where the fighting violence was, uh, was the epicenter of the famine. <coughs> so I just wanted to say a few things about the famine, and I would refer, if you want m- more um, kind of details on this, I'd certainly refer you to the um, issue, the, f- the inaugural issue of global food security, which um, had a special issue on the Somalia famine, and um, and really a few people in the, this room had papers in this in this uh, journal, which was really helpful at kind of picking apart the political aspects in particular of of the emergence of famine in these areas. So I ju- but I just want to pick out a few was particularly related to displacement. The first being that uh, the most affected area, that area between those rivers, was really one that was heavily, um, influ- heavily sort of uh, had been uh, the main area in which minority clans lived. And their, their tenure over land is, was somewhat uncertain. And there have been periods historically in which uh, minority clans have been pushed off their land or had their land expropriated by more powerful clans. So it's not entirely clear what the situation is with regard to their their access to land and whether they'll be able to return to them. Um, It's also true that that displacement and access to famine relief was used as a political tool by both sides within the conflict. By al-Shabaab, who tried to keep people out of the TFG areas, tried to say that it could manage uh, to provide humanitarian relief to people in their home areas so that they wouldn't have to be displaced and really had an interest in trying to prevent large flows out of areas under its control. And at the same time, the transitional government tried to lure people into cities to try to sh- demonstrate that it had the ability, again, to, to provide relief to people in areas that it had under its control. It's a way of demonstrating the sort of legitimacy of the governance project by being able to respond to people's needs. Certainly there was more going on. It's not to say that these are the only things that explain the different movements of these different groups, but certainly it's, it's also important to recognize that these kinds of considerations were key strategic factors within the, f- the war at this particular time. There's also a phenomenon of uh, what might be called forcibly immobile people, people who would have liked to have left if they had had the chance, but were either kept in place by these attempts to constrain movement or actually had lost so much that they didn't have the wherewithal to be able to move, and those represent particularly vulnerable people as well. So we now we've got this situation where we have about, about more than half a million refugees living in Kenya's camps. <coughs> There's uh, estimated to be about 10,000 what we call third-generation refugees, so people whose 
grandparents came as refugees in 1991-92. Their parents then grew up in the camps, and these are now children who are, have been born to, to, to parents who were also born in refugee camps. Um, there are attempts by the Kenyan government now to confine refugees to camps. In December, they tried to uh, issue an order ordering all Somalis back into the camps, uh, which are already scenes of quite uh, insecure situation, uh, sort of insecure uh, conditions with um, forced recruitment, theft, rape, all sorts of things going on that are, uh, refugees are trying to get away from. Um, about 200,000 people living in Ethiopia right now. And the government's really keen to keep out new arrivals, so it's trying to make life quite difficult for people to, to cross over the border into Ethiopia. And on top of that, about one and a half million IDPs. So just to think about all of this, I kind of set up by, by, and by way of thinking about some possible solutions. If you take these large, large numbers, one and a half million IDPs, ha more than half a million refugees living in Kenya, it's, a, it's an unmanageable number, and it's <coughs> completely overwhelming. And one could see, one could have some sympathy with the Kenyan government, for instance, of why should they take a stand and say it's time for people to go home. Of course, they, this is a huge problem. But one of the, so one of the ways that, that I wanted to suggest today that, that we think about potential solutions is to, to break down this population into different kinds of people and to think about the conditions upon which they, they, they first were displaced, perhaps, and also the potential situation that they would face if they came back. And in that way, you can sort of try to disaggregate this, this very large number into some more manageable um, kinds of, of people and, and situations. Um, it may be true that some are able to return more quickly than others. Those who have been re displaced more recently probably would have an easier time returning than those who've been away for longer. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case because we know that some people who have been uh, some people who have were displaced in 2011 perhaps have lost their land and, and have not anything to go back to without some livelihood support to shift their base of livelihoods. Um, it's not clear at what point, there's been a lot of discussion and there will be more discussion next week at the London conference about uh, making sure that security situation, the security situation is adequate to facilitate return. It's not really clear what's, what an adequate security situation would look like. Um, and um, I'm quite concerned that, that in the rush to, uh, to recognize uh, to recognize the new government and to try to, to assist it in uh, facilitating security, that there's a kind of a, an attempt, uh, tendency to kind of overstate the achievements that have been already uh, reached when in fact there are more sort of aspirations than, than actual achievements, which I'll come back to in a minute. Um, and also just to think about what's the, what's the availability of social services and livelihood support and the kinds of really, not, not we're not talking about massive kind of uh, complicated arrangements, but really just the most basic kinds of arrangements to receive people in areas to which they may return. Those of you who have studied or thought about uh, migration will know that there are typically three, three durable solutions, repatriation, local integration, and resettlement, which are uh, talked about. And I think in terms of thinking about solutions for people displaced within the Horn, there's a need to think about some sort of new twists on durable solutions. Maybe to think about new countries becoming engaged in resettlement. Resettlement has typically been something that the U.S. has been quite heavily involved in, and to lesser extent, some European countries. Gulf countries, however, have not really been involved in resettlement at all. Is there a possibility of, of working out some arrangements <coughs> such that they might be involved, or other African countries? 
other kinds of, of resettlement uh, um, arrangements could, could those be made. Um, it's important as well uh, to think about trying to present or trying to pick apart this, this large problem of refugees, particularly within Kenya, uh, and to present Kenya with some kind of a plan in which it c that it can live with. So, so to say, well, you just have to keep all these half million people. You need, it's your responsibility under international law to, to host them. That's actually true. Uh, but at the same time, um, you can see that it may be an unworkable situation for the Kenyan, not just for the government, but actually for the, the for, uh, public opinion within Kenya is quite heavily, strongly stacked against Somali refugees. Um, and so then kind of picking apart, looking at the camps and saying, well, there are some unaccompanied children, there are some uh, women who are uh, single women uh, who are particularly vulnerable, there may be disabled people as well. Are there ways of, of finding some solutions for those kinds of people that may be easier? There's a sort of, unfortunately, the kind of low-hanging fruit in a sense in terms of thinking about this overall population. Finding some solutions for them that, 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 that help to break apart this very large number. Um, and finally, just to say that, that there's a need to think, think about solutions for refugees together with solutions for IDPs, um, and that the, the two need to go together quite strongly. Just to finish up, um, what I was trying to do in this very short presentation was to, to try to situate mobility within <coughs> this kind of central strategy as a, as a strategy cause results of, of the political dynamics in Somalia and to show how it's a central feature of what's been happening there over the last 20 years, not a sort of sideshow, not a side story. <coughs> in the paper that Anne and I will write in the next <laughs> couple of months, hopefully, uh, we are trying to suggest that this narrative of constant crisis has served political ends in some ways. It's justified a certain kind of international uh, stance, sort of approach towards Somalia, which has probably outlived its usefulness, if it ever had any, and uh, needs to be really re-examined and, and uh, probably taken apart. And also, finally, just to think, thinking through future for the future, and, and not just to next week, but to what comes after that, real importance about thinking about trying to remain very realistic about the achievements of the current government. Uh, there's lots of reason to be optimistic, and there's lots of reason to hope that eventually, uh, under, this, under the stewardship of the new government, people will be able to return, but um, not to sort of blind ourselves to the real kind of um, preca precautions and pre- uh, requisites that need to be in place before such kind of movement is, is possible. Just leave it there. Thanks.